0: hello everybody welcome to health chatter the what can i eat episode or what most of us would call nutrition as we've as we've talked about in the past nutrition is an important part of for everybody health-wise and we'll be getting into that uh, with our great guy today, uh, gets her, uh, her in a minute. Uh, before we get started, I want to um, recognize our, our great staff. Uh, Maddie Levine-Wolf and Aaron Collins are both our, our background researchers on all the topics that we've been doing on on Health Chatter and do a wonderful job helping Clarence and I focus, which from time to time we have a little problem with. So they they really help us and they also provide us some really good perspectives on the subjects that we're engaged with. In addition, um, Matthew Campbell is our production manager and makes sure that everything is working. Beautifully, as we uh, record these shows for you, our listening audience, the special person on on this team is uh, Clarence Jones he and I uh, have been linked for for a long time in the in the healthcare arena, and he's really really a, a, a special. Colleague, he has he has taught me all these years how to think different in the public health arena, and to this day I can't thank him enough. And now we're doing this fun thing together. Well, I thank you, Stan. I think I think you give me too much credit here, man. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah uh, you, you, I, I you've know. been right
1: you've there. been the thinker. Yeah. But you know yeah. what's in, what's interesting has been uh the the various topics that we have talked about and the and the the guests and the the caliber of guests that we we have and uh you know when we start talking about nutrition i don't I don't think I've ever met a meal that I didn't like <laughs> you know so uh, and and that could be a problem. And I think that for many people that are, uh, for many people, especially in 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 in, in, in the community and, and in our in our country, I think we like our meals too much, and we don't think too much about nutrition. We just think about filling ourselves up. And so it'll be a great conversation to have today, and uh, to be able to just kind of go into this, and um, you know, to, to really begin to ask the questions that we need to be asking about our health about our connection to food, about our connection to food access, and to do it in a way in which we are able to take some action because that's really the whole part about Community Health Chatter is not only that we will talk about the topic, but at the end of the conversation, we will have uh, some action plan. And we're very happy, as you just said, with our uh, our other colleagues. And I know Maddie self-identified that she was very interested in food access. So we're looking forward to hearing from her as well, so so
0: you know. So our, our our illustrious guest is is a colleague of mine. Oh my gosh, I don't know how many years Teresa, you and I. That'd be that'd be a dangerous thought to put on air, right? Okay, but um, it's been really a, a pleasure knowing Teresa Ambrose, who um, has carried in her pocket her her nutrition background well these years and has tried to, as best she can, um, apply it in, in various arenas, whether it be from the, the true prevention arena to our state health imp- improvement program ship at, in the state of Minnesota, and also now as the um, supervisor of our diabetes Arthritis and Behavior Unit at the uh, at the Minnesota Department of Health. I have worked with her. I did work with her when I was supervising the Cardiovascular Health Unit. As you can imagine, many of the risk factors associated with um, around nutrition were very complementary in both of those chronic disease arenas. So it's it's truly a pleasure having you on on our show today. You know, we could we could talk about this from all over the place. You know, one of the things I you know I was thinking about is just like, is Teresa gonna tell me that I can't eat a pastrami sandwich? Is Teresa gonna tell me that I can't eat ice cream? Is Teresa gonna tell me that I can't eat a good piece of babka cake from Zabar's Delicatessen in New York City? Are you going to tell me that, Teresa?
2: I'm really happy to be here, Stan. It's, it's been <laughs> fantastic working with you all, all these years and, you know, getting to know Clarence and meeting this team today. I am not. I, I generally use the message that there are no forbidden foods. We start forbidding foods and we take away joy and social connectedness and we also make people crave those foods more. So <laughs> the magic is moderation
0: okay
1: good (laughs) thank you for that for that the wonderful introduction sam because i think that the thing for me was really about uh, the conversation about how much of that good food could we eat you know and and i think that it's important and i'm glad that you're here so that we can we can talk about that because as you talked about it one of the other things that you mentioned uh in terms of your work is also around health behavior and i don't think that we attribute health behavior to food so it'll be good to see the connection
2: there are many forces that influence the choices we make. And the trends that we've seen in our eating patterns are really influenced by a lot of those forces. So we talk about empowering people with information so they can make better choices, but we also have to acknowledge the shifts in our society that are making those choices difficult and subconsciously, we don't even know, we're not conscious of it, influencing our choices. And there's example after example of um, studies with researchers where they talk about behavioral economics. And if we serve food on a larger plate, you eat more. Or if we um, put this first in the buffet line, you're gonna eat more and people know it, learn it, and then they still do it and don't think that they did. Mm -hmm. So we are very influenced by our environment. We need to acknowledge that.
0: So tell me, um, let's talk, you know, you and I have, have have kind of these arenas of thinking, you know, prevention, and certainly with with nutrition, it would be more um, on the disease management. In other words, once somebody is unfortunately dealt with disease, or they they have a disease that they're they're dealing with, then um, nutrition and eating becomes an important component. So let's first talk about prevention. What are the key messages? our audience should know about prevention?
2: So from a diet standpoint, um, first of all, 80% of chronic conditions like diabetes, heart disease, um, cancer, some types of cancer can be prevented with lifestyle change. And diet is considered one of the most important and influential variables. And so when we talk about diet, what we know is most Americans eat a standard American diet referred to as a sad diet, which is high in processed foods, high in sodium, high in added sugars and high in saturated fats and low in fruits, whole fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, beans and lentils, the things that actually help our health. So um, some, some nutritionists will say, love foods that love you back. So finding those foods that you love, like fruits and vegetables that you enjoy eating, um, eating more whole grains and eating less red meat, processed meats, eating fish on a regular basis. Those are some of the foundations of healthy eating.
1: So I want to ask a question, I mean, cause you just made a statement about 80% of the, of the diseases that we are maybe be experiencing could be caused by our diet. So, I, I mean, I'm so I'm I'm just putting out there like that, and not genetics. I mean, it's uh, it, it's really interesting because I think that many times people think like, well, you know, I, my family got a history of this, but is it could it could it be because of the foods that we've been eating that that we have such a history?
2: Yes, partially. Lifestyle is related to eighty percent. So physical activity matters, stress management, social connectedness, tobacco use, all of those things are components um, of that 80% preventable and social determinants of health. So we need to kind of consider the bigger picture, but diet is by some researchers considered one of the most important preventable behaviors or choices we can make. When you look at things over time, when I started in my career as a dietitian in the clinic, I worked at Hennepin County Medical Center, I worked at the University of Minnesota, I worked at health partners clinics, and we didn't see kids with what was referred to as adult onset diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, In my career, I started to see children with adult onset diabetes, we changed the name to type two diabetes. Um, That Mm -hmm. is a diet related chronic condition. And when you look back historically in the 1980s, we saw this dramatic increase in childhood obesity rates. And it just, the curve started going up. And 10 years later, we saw this dramatic increase in diabetes rates, Um, seven times more people have diabetes than they did in the 1960s. This isn't a genetic change. Genetic change does not happen this quickly. This is a change in our food environment, our culture, our society, how we live. We're eating on the go. We're snacking more. Our our behaviors are different, and that all influences the quality of our food and our health. So when you...
0: you know, when we talk about linking um, behavior with nutrition, um, let, let's just, let, let's take a, a, a specific. Somebody um, goes into their physician and um, with a variety of symptoms and boom, it's determined that they are diabetic, okay? Well, all of a sudden, nutrition and what you eat is front and center. Okay. So based on your experience, Teresa, do people make more changes in their eating habits when they have to? Okay. As opposed to, in other words, from a a, a disease management perspective, as opposed to a true prevention perspective? What, what do you see more of?
2: And you make a really good point, Stan. A lot of times people get sick and then our system, our, you know, our healthcare system, which was really a sick care system kicks in and provides a lot of support for people to, to manage their diet. We were doing focus groups with uh, men who had cardiovascular disease once. And one of the men said, um, don't let your first visit to a doctor be in an ambulance because he hadn't taken care of his health, gone to see the doctor um, and he had a heart attack and now he was really interested in in his diet. And how to shift that, You know, it takes a lot of societal change. Um, How do we support people early in life? We really need need to move upstream. We need to talk about children. Um, We need to talk about families. We need to talk about what we can do as communities, what we can do as businesses. To support healthy choices because it's it's really hard um, to convince people based on fear. Fear is not a motivator. When people start eating more healthfully, you know, some might do it because of fear. Their, their parent had Alzheimer's disease or um, their parent had diabetes and they don't want to get it. But ultimately, the motivator is you feel better. You're enjoying your food. You're connecting. Like There's social connectedness. There's a lot of other benefits you can have. Healthy eating can be delicious. So we need to shift the thinking about what healthy eating means and that it is. there's more benefits to you personally in the short term um, as well as the long term.
1: So let me ask this question real quickly. Uh, you, you started talking about the translation of diabetes from just, uh, you said an adult onset to, we had to change it to type two diabetes. Okay. Is that a res you say, and then you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, then you mentioned children. Is that a, is that, is that a result of our processing of foods or the changes in our, you know, you talked about our diets. Is that, is that connected to it? That, that processed food? Cause we hear that all the time. So is that one of the reasons for this?
2: Yeah, processed foods are associated with chronic conditions and poor health outcomes, weight gain, higher calorie intake. When we eat out at restaurants, we tend to eat not as healthfully. Um, When we're eating on the go, foods that are convenient. You know, we have a busy lifestyle and we have cup holders every place. We're drinking a lot of sugary drinks. Um, All of those things are contributing to our poorer health. So we need to get back to Closer to how food is grown, more natural sources of food, um, definitely linked.
0: So how long has the profession that you are in, how long has it been around? I mean, it's like I kind of think back, you know, when I was growing up as a little kid, I I don't remember, frankly, a nutritionist, perhaps I was just oblivious to it, a nutritionist actually being part of the healthcare team. Am I incorrect in that thinking or am I correct that it's a relatively newer field?
2: You are correct. The science of nutrition is, is really relatively quite new. The first vitamin wasn't discovered, vitamin A, until 1926. And we focused a lot on vitamins for a long time. Now we're looking more holistically at food. Um, We know that we can't single out a single vitamin and give it to you and improve health, Um, really, unless there's a clear deficiency. It's really a whole foods model and studying it is complicated. And that's one of the reasons um, maybe we don't know as much as we could. And it's also a not-for-profit business. Funding for nutrition research um, might sell more produce and vegetables, but who's going to profit from that? Who's going to invest in that? It's not the same as a medication. So we really don't have as much research as we
0: ideally could have. Yeah, yeah. Maddie, you have a question.
2: Um, yeah, I just, I was um, stimulated when you were talking about, um, you know, people. Eating healthier and what makes them eat healthier, what motivates them. And I was wondering, has technology helped people eat healthier at all? Like now that there's, you know, all these apps and, um, you know, there's a lot of apps that can tell you. For example, I used to have this like seafood app that would tell me like which fish is like currently healthier based on how it was like harvested and what was in the area. So I was just curious about the relationship between. Um, healthy eating and technology right now. That's a great question, Maddie. There is so much happening in in this arena. There's certainly many ways we can use technology to help apply nutrition um, behavior change um, successfully. Like text messaging parents to help them, you know, with healthier eating for their children is you know one evidence based approach that's been used. Um, there are definitely tracking apps and and programs and now there's distance learning models with technology. More people across our state of Minnesota can have access to services um, and support. There's also downsides to technology. People who watch more screen time, um, whether it was TV historically or now kids playing or adults playing games on their, their cell phones, will get bombarded with far more ads. If you're using a uh, GPS, you're trying to get to a store or something, you see these little, you know, announcements like, oh, you're passing a seven, you're a convenience store right now, stop and get a sugary drink. So there's, there's also the downside, which we know influences behavior, food marketing influences behavior. And so there's wins, and there's losses with it.
0: You know, um, here's, here's a good one. So I was in, um, the grocery store um, last week and you know you, go, you can't help but go down the chip aisle or the cookie aisle okay it's almost labeled as such that you know you know careful careful this is a danger aisle but at any rate you go down the aisle anyway and you look at um, you know I'm just trying to get in the minds of people that go down a grocery aisle okay you see chips Okay. And one one bag of chips are potato chips or kettle chips. Okay. Boom. Right next to them are vegetable chips. Okay. Now, regular chips, vegetable chips. If I'm going to pick chips, is it best to say no altogether or take are vegetable chips a better choice for people? So what are the good foods and what are the truly the bad foods? And using that as an illustration.
1: And may I add to that GMOs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I think it's been one of the things that that I kind of sort of know about them, but it's kind of like, I look for it a little bit more, but can you talk to our listeners about this, what Stan talked about, whether the chip's good, you know, the bad, and then the GMOs. Can we pull that together?
2: Those are great questions. I'll just say briefly about the GMOs. Jimmy Kimmel did a a great video on that, about how confused people are. Um, So a lot of this really revolves around marketing. So if you put a food is natural on the label, people think it's better for them and buy it. Or if you put that a food is gluten free people think it's healthier and generally speaking Mm -hmm. many of those foods are ultra processed have higher amounts of sugar and sodium Um, so it doesn't mean that it's healthier for you but people are confused um gmo is something people put on labels to to draw attention but it's not necessarily an indication explain uh, what gmo
0: is for our audience
2: genetically modified organisms i believe um and much of our food has been genetically modified through the years and there's not enough research to say some forms of genetically modified food are are good or bad Um, certainly paying attention to the research we don't research all of those chemicals that are on the food labels that you Mm -hmm. see they're not necessarily tested Um, we don't have a lot of funding in our food and drug administration Far, far, just a fraction of the funding in Food and Drug Administration we have for nutrition as we have for tobacco, for example, our supplements aren't
0: regulated. So um, let me ask you whether or not um, certain foods, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure we've all been in this thing. You know, one day this food is good and the next day it's bad. The next day, One day it's bad and the next day it's good. Um, Can you give us any illustrations of that your background? I I think I can remember a couple if I remember right.
2: Yeah. So you might remember butter, front of the New York Times a few years ago. I think Mark Bittman, butter is back. Um, Some research about substituting um, unsaturated fats for butter and other foods um, in the diet. Some of those diet studies were replacing saturated fat with added sugars, processed carbs, trans fat margarines. So really, it wasn't comparing um, saturated fat to a more holistic diet. So the studies were flawed. Um, So then, you know, Harvard would publish, no, butter is definitely not back, you know, so people get really confused. Exactly. I think, I think. At the end of the day, we know the overwhelming body of evidence is that saturated fat contributes to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, is not something you know that we want to eat too much of. Um, so, go ahead.
1: Yes, yeah, so I is so. I, I'm just wanting to ask this question because it's burning inside of me. Who can we trust about food? <laughs> because <laughs> think- you know, I mean, because I mean, you, I mean we we've had some wonderful conversations here today but it's like okay so i'm i'm confused about gmos i'm confused i'm not really confused about processed food i kind of understand that so where can we get some real good information or just should we just go become vegans and just (laughs) grow our own food and you know i got i got a little uh, space in my windows up here i can grow. i can't grow anything big but i can grow some herbs i guess but anyway i'm so It's so much
0: for my pastrami sandwich. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So so
1: who who can we trust when it comes to this issue? And how does that, that, you know, kind of dovetail into this whole thing about the health behaviors?
2: So I think it's an excellent question. We have to put people above profits and we have to keep asking questions. And we recognize that science is evolving. This is a new science. And if somebody professes to have the 100 percent accurate answer you know and the magic cure you know be suspect um know that one study isn't um, enough evidence it's interesting and if you know blueberries come out and it says blueberries might help x y or z and you want to eat more blueberries there's no harm in that um, but more studies need to come out um, so be cautious of the magic kind of foods, magic supplements. Mm -hmm. But as far as people where I look, where I go look for kind of credible information, there's a few places. There is an initiative called the True Health Initiative on lifestyle medicine, where a lot of researchers and national groups are coming together to try to get to the bottom of the truth. Um, There's a Center for Science in the Public Interest that takes no funding from industry and no funding from government. And they tend to Publish some unvarnished truths. Um, When you're thinking of supplements, there's the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health out of the NIH, which will look at some of those supplements and look at what may be proven and also look at what potential harm taking a supplement could have because you should really consider them, you know, as potential, you know, pharmaceuticals or drugs in some ways. So, you know, don't just assume because they're natural, they're not going to potentially cause a side effect. Um, the American Heart Association has some great content. Um, EatRight.org is the American Nutrition and Dietetics group, which of which I'm a part and I will acknowledge they take industry funding, which concerns me at times. Um, so we need to really be attention to who's benefiting from the advice. If somebody's selling something to you, they might not be your most credible source of information. And ask questions and cross-check and talk to your doctor, talk to your healthcare professionals, talk to your dietitians. Um, you know, they don't make direct profits in those systems from from the advice they give, and I think they can be really trusted sources.
0: So, um, it's it, it's a complicated subject. I've, I, you know, it, and it's like, who do you trust? And do you have time to figure out who to trust when you're going grocery shopping? So um, have you ever been a proponent of the idea of of healthy aisles in grocery stores? I know there was a talk at one Mm -hmm. point, like if you are um, diabetic, for instance, focus on this aisle. These things are really good for you and and the diabetes that you're dealing with. Talk to me about that.
2: So generally speaking, shopping the perimeters of a grocery store where you see the produce um, is is kind of the general guidance people will often give. Um, look for foods that don't require a label. Um, or if it does, is just a few key ingredients that you recognize. And Then the checkout lanes is is something I definitely would be a proponent of putting healthy checkout lanes in place can be really effective because a lot of people make um, decisions at the point of purchase when they're standing Mm. in line. Their child is you've probably all been in a in a grocery store and seen a child nagging their parent when they see the candy Mm -hmm. right there. And then the parent doesn't want to make a scene, may, you know, buy that candy for their child. Um, Vending machines, the same thing. Um, I was at a pool the other day and kids saw the vending machine and we at swimming lessons and packed with unhealthy foods. So trying to make those healthy foods um, accessible in vending machines or not having food everywhere we go, that'd be another great alternative.
0: Yeah. What about farmer's markets? Are they healthier?
2: Farmer's markets can be great sources of um, supporting the, the farmers and, and the farm economy and local growers, which is wonderful. Um, helping those farmers get their food into bigger systems like schools is even better um, so that it can make more profits and, and benefit economically. And, you know, farmers markets should really think about who they allow to be vendors. Um, I, I've watched the evolution of farmers markets. I don't know that they're necessarily meeting every community's needs and we should really think about where they are located and what communities they are serving so that they're serving everyone. Um, so that's not just a privilege um, to be able to go to a farmer's market. But but look, you know, there's lemonade stands and, and pastry stands and food trucks. And so, you know, maybe setting some standards or guidance guidance or policies about what's available at a farmer's market would be a good policy
1: approach. Yeah, yeah, you know, I I want to say this. I I, I want to go back to the to the communication piece, and I saw saw Maddie had put something up, up in in the uh, in the chat as well about it. But uh, different communities uh, hear information differently. I know you mentioned a lot of a lot of the uh, the governmental resources and things like that, uh, and many communities have their own cultural way of eating foods. I am wondering, have you, do you have any kind of strategies, you know, with, with people who might uh, be in communities that may not necessarily utilize the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the regular governmental outlets for us to be able to convey messages around good nutrition and good health? Because I think that it's important because, as you know, in, in many communities that we're struggling with, we're struggling with these various diseases but what would what do you think is the most effective or what could be a, a, an effective way to convey good messages around healthy eating
2: that's If that great if make
1: it, if that makes sense
2: yeah that's a great question i think people learn a lot from each other you know so having mm-hmm. trained you know leaders um, in your community, and I know Clarence, you've done work with barbershops in the past. Mm, so, mm. so trusted messengers and training could mm. could go a long way in those communities. Um, you know, if if you have those those people trained, or if they end up in a, you know, visit with a healthcare provider, you know, we talk about motivational interviewing, understanding mm-hmm. where that person's at, also understanding their individual risk factors. Um, you know, so. If, if, I was sitting down, you know, as a clinical dietitian with a client. If they loved meat and they had high blood pressure, but they didn't care so much about sodium, I might hone in on the sodium. Um, you know, looking at their risk factors, their interests, their community, mm. their eating habits, what they're interested in changing, mm. and begin there. Um, so help them identify what behaviors might have the biggest payoff for their health. Okay and what they're ready to change or interested in changing. Um, sugary drinks are often a focus. Sugary drinks are a big contributor. Some people aren't aware of it. So helping them understand how that could influence their health and, and the benefits shifting to water um, or gradually scaling back on how much they consume.
1: Well, it's interesting, I'm, I'm doing a real quick plug if, if it's okay with you, Stan and, and the rest of the crew. Uh, HUMAN is now working around a it's just water campaign in order to address the issue around diabetes. And so you'll be hearing more about that. So I'm telling you that because you're in diabetes, but uh, we we know that that's a very important thing. So you'll be hearing more from us listeners about uh, it's just water.
2: I am thrilled to hear that, Clarence. That is fantastic. And I will add, you know, one interesting thing culturally about water is, you know, we really encourage people to drink water You know, at meals, um, not instead of sugary drinks. And some communities, you know, recent immigrants come here and they're afraid of our tap water. Yeah. And then it's an economic burden to buy bottled water, and they might choose a sugary drink because it's more of a treat that they can give their children, Mm -hmm. and they're limited Mm -hmm. resources. So there's a lot of aspects um, to address and make sure people know water can be safe in, you know, the United States and and okay for them to drink and and a better choice. So those are things, you know, to keep in mind. And the other interesting thing about water is sometimes our environmental friends will advocate for eliminating bottled water from vending machines um, when in fact, we're leaving the plastic bottles of the sugary beverages in vending machines. So let's like advocate for, for water access as a really important thing and give it equal access at the very least to sugary drinks.
0: You know, um... Clarence mentioned uh, Human Partnership, and I'd be remiss if I didn't plug them because they are uh, really a sponsor of our Health Chatter broadcasts here, and um, and many many thanks goes goes to them as being a uh, community sponsor for uh, for for this engagement. So all right. Let, uh, sugary beverages I know that that's been kind of a a theme that's been going through here but let me let me bring that up one notch and talk about policy okay policy um and what we should be looking at in order to literally help us all regarding nutrition so take it away Teresa
2: Wow, there's so many things we could be doing. And part of it just depends on what the community thinks is most important for their community. There's little P policy changes. I know some youth led efforts in Minneapolis to get restaurants to have water available at all restaurants and easily accessible. You know, that helps a lot. People can choose water, it's free. Um, That's a little P policy that businesses can do. Food guidelines in schools, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act in schools have made um, school meals, one of the healthiest places kids are eating um, outside of the home, which is great. That's the power of policy. Worksite policies where we don't serve sugary drinks at, um, you know, paid for company venue events. Um, those are some of their little p policies. In addition, you can consider um, sh- sugary drink or junk food excise taxes, other Communities have done this and seen reductions in sugary beverage intake, like Philadelphia, um, for example, and seen you know, improvements in health disparities. Because these products are marketed more aggressively to communities of color, um, the kids will see twice as many ads um, in communities of color, so they're more likely to consume them and, and those policies. Um, can really benefit those communities and the money can be reinvested based on what the communities think is most important to improving their health. And that's a huge win. So you're winning on the healthcare pain, suffering costs perspective, but you're also winning on the community benefit aspect. Um, There's also, um, I think Maddie was really interested in this, Access to healthy foods is really important. So many people who experience chronic conditions also experience food insecurity. And if you think about your typical donations historically to food shelves or food banks, you know, macaroni and cheese comes to mind, right? Packaged foods you know, convenience foods, all the foods that contribute to chronic conditions. And there's been a lot of work to make sure those foods are healthy, healthier Mm -hmm. in in those settings that people have choices about what they like to eat when they visit a food shelf, that there's some behavioral economics um, strategies in place so that fruits and vegetables are front and center and they look good and they're appealing. Um, So that's another food access issue. But think about food and Changing your lifestyle can have profound impacts on your blood pressure, your diabetes. And we prescribe pills, but we rarely give lifestyle intervention or lifestyle as medicine a chance. And if we could prescribe produce or if we could prescribe um, nutritionally tailored meals for people with chronic conditions, um, there's a lot of research emerging about that being just really economically beneficial, improving health. Um, So we need to keep thinking about ways to connect people to food in a way that's respectful, culturally relevant, um, so that we can improve health.
0: So should policy be um, part of the game? Another way, I mean, do we have to get to that point in order for us to really um, change our behaviors?
2: Well, if you look at tobacco,
0: education,
2: education, education for 50 years, and then policy.
0: then policy, right? Yeah.
2: So we need both.
0: Yeah, education
2: yeah, and we need yeah. policy.
0: Educate, so- then legislate. Yeah. Go ahead. So my, my this is my
1: last question. Uh this is for those of us who are more seasoned in our life. Uh does does our food need change as we get older? I mean, you know, do we need to be more conscious uh with our, our, our food choices and our health behaviors as we get more seasoned? <laughs>
2: Great question.
0: That's yes. salt seasoning. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So yeah, you might have hypertension. Salt is a, is a big factor. That would be another good policy to reduce sodium in our processed foods. Um, yes. We tend to need fewer calories. So we need to get more nutrition from the calories that we eat. We might not have the sense of thirst that we had in the past. So we might be more prone to dehydration and for most Americans, we get far too much protein, more protein than we need. That can be at an unhealthy level for people um, and chronic kidney disease risk, for example. But as we get older, sometimes we're not eating enough calories and we're not getting enough protein. So being attentive to high quality protein, and that could be beans and lentils, it doesn't, you know, chicken, um, fish, those are great sources. Um, And then B12 deficiency can become an issue as absorption is influenced. So being attentive to your B12 and talking to your physician about any medications that might be interacting and contributing to any nutritional um, issues is also important.
0: So um, I got to tell my, our listeners this, I've been volunteering at the hospital here in the orthopedic unit. And these, these patients literally have just come out of, uh, of surgery and um, they're still feeling okay because they're still, you know, under the, the, um, The anesthesia, but um, one of the and I've been instructed give them the one-liners, you know, from somebody who's gone through uh, knee surgery, and one of the things I tell them is, I said, "Listen, in order for you to really get through this, eat really healthy, be a partner with, you know, have your make your eating a partner." with your 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 healing and it's really interesting how people react to that they react really really favorably that you know they they would say things like that really makes a lot of sense to to do that to eat healthy as i'm trying to heal um so that it's that's also a good message as far as um nutrition and uh disease Management. So um, the final thing before we, we, we sign off here is um, what can we do? Okay, here we, we have a, a, um, a way to get information out here through uh, through health chatter. Um, we you know we'll have our website uh, where, pe- where our listeners will be able to get more information. What do you recommend? I mean, this is, you know, it's like one of these high-tech ways of getting information out or or talk with people. So what do you recommend, Teresa? Well, first of all,
2: I'm really glad that you're raising awareness about the importance of what we eat and the importance of enjoying what we eat to improve our lives and our health and our communities. Um, I, I think testimonials honestly can work quite well. So if you have people in your community who are facing challenges and barriers, um, you know, and can tell a story that others who may be experiencing those same challenges and barriers can relate to, I think that would be really nice to feature some of those stories to influence um, people so that they can see that they can do it as well, because people can make these changes. It doesn't have to be overnight. It can be very incremental. Everybody changes in different ways, but small things, small changes that you do consistently over time make a big difference. And making progress and slipping back and making progress is is part of the process. And I can guarantee you, if you start cutting back on salt, you're going to not be able to go back and eat that pastrami sandwich stand because it'll taste way too salty. Right, it just right, won't even right. taste good. And you're going to really, <laughs> really enjoy some of the other foods maybe that you haven't been enjoying in the past.
0: You know, that's a great idea. Having personal testimonies around particular subject nutrition or people that have gone through various uh, conditions. It's, it's, a, it's really wonderful. People really resonate to that. Last thoughts, Clarence.
1: Thank you. That's my last thought. I thank you because this has been an exciting journey uh, for this last 40, 45 minutes uh, talking about these issues. And uh, you really caused me to think I'm not, I'm not going to tell you all the things that I'm thinking, but they're very, very positive (laughs) about my own eating. Uh, I'm sitting up here thinking like, okay, can I substitute this for that? And you know, that's kind of thing. So thank you very much because it has been uh, uh, enlightening, but also it's been provoking me to to do more positive things. So thank you.
0: It's been a pleasure, Teresa. And, and I really compliment you on, on, on the torch that that you carry. Um, it's, it's a difficult one, and, a, and and a challenging one to focus on on nutrition and get people to, to eat right. So um, many, many thanks for being on health chatter. Our next show, everybody, stay tuned. will be on health gadgets and all the different technological things that you carry along with you, including your phone, your watches, what have you, in order to theoretically make us healthier. With that, keep health chatting away.